0: Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. I'm Burke Allen, live in Washington, D.C. The show is a service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Let's say you're a meeting planner and you need a speaker, or you're a platform speaker and you need a place to to platform. Well, SpeakerMatch is a great resource to find one another. Check them out at SpeakerMatch.com, and you can find the Big Time Talker podcast on all the platforms, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. Tell your friends and subscribe. We talk a lot about a lot of interesting things, and health is always at the top of everyone's list, certainly in the last year and a half as we battled the pandemic. And Dr. Andrew Wilner, uh, who's based in Tennessee, is good enough to join us today. Uh, Andrew's a board certified internist, he's a neurologist, he specializes in epilepsy. Uh, He's a health journalist. He's also a scuba diver, so you may run into him somewhere deep under the sea, maybe at the the, the reefs off the coast of Australia sometime. So look for Dr. Wilner underwater as well. He's written a couple of books. His latest is The Locum Life, and we're going to ask him what that means exactly. You can also check out Andrew's podcast, The Art of Medicine, with Dr. Andrew Wilner. W-I-L-N-E-R. Andrew, thanks for being on the Big Time Talker podcast today. I'm thrilled to be here, Burke. We're going to get into uh, the locum life because I think what you did for many, many years and what you've written about is pretty interesting. But I want to start with, of course, the biggest story primarily of, of most of our lives, and that is uh, the pandemic and coronavirus and and what that has meant to you both personally and professionally in the last year and a half.
1: Wow. Well, It is the biggest story and uh, I was checking my email before the podcast this morning and I'm getting uh, emails from the hospital where I work that the emergency room is uh, overloaded and uh, they're at maximum. The president of the hospital has just requested a few million dollars of emergency funding from the county to hire additional staff so that we can open up more beds And, uh, professionally, this is, uh, well, the biggest challenge of my professional life for sure.
0: Did you have any sort of crystal ball, uh, to foresee not the pandemic specifically, but how big and, and how immersive this would be for the entire planet? Did you see it coming?
1: Well, you know, at the beginning, I think like most people, way back December, January, started hearing about this. It's like, oh, you know, it's it's going to be like Ebola. You know, it'll just be sort of in some part of the world. But when it started to spread, you know, I mean, when it's just like kids at school. You know, when one of them gets sick, they all get sick. That that's the way viruses are. And it was pretty clear that once this thing started to to, to move around the world, and of course, you know, that's that's a new problem that we have, you know, a hundred years ago, it took a long time to get from London to New York. You know, you got on the boat, maybe three months later you showed up, but uh, now in just a few hours, you can be anywhere in the world and take whatever virus or uh, infection or parasite you have with you, you know, and share it with the rest of the world. And, and so there was a movie about this, right? Contagion while back, where uh, the, it spreads exponentially So, uh, you know, I was one of those people just praying for a vaccine. And it's like, you know, that is our only hope. And it did come quickly, but uh, not quickly enough. And, of course, not enough people have taken it. And so uh, the virus is really uh, not well controlled. I'll say that, you know, I've heard people say, well, I don't want to tell people to go get the vaccine. It's like, well, I'm not one of those people. I'm going to tell you, go get the vaccine. Because uh, that is our biggest weapon against this. And you ask me how this pandemic has affected me personally. Right. I'll say, you know, first of all, when I came home from work and even now, you know, my first stop is the laundry room. Clothes go in the washing machine. I go in the shower. You know, I wear a mask all the time at work because I don't want to bring this home to my family and I have a two and a half year old and my two and a half year old is not eligible for the vaccine. And I am terrified every day, you know, he's just starting school and it's pretty exciting stuff, but he's exposed to people in the world and he's exposed to the germs that they carry that may well be lethal. We had two children die in Memphis last week at the pediatric hospital of COVID-19. Does it happen often? no does it happen yes and if it happens to your child well that's the biggest catastrophe in the world and uh, i really don't have uh much patience i guess where people don't want to get the vaccine you know if they want to get sick and die that's okay but it's a lot more than that because they can carry the virus and spread it to other people who can't get the vaccine like my son and children at St. Jude who are immunocompromised, which is right down the road. So I think it's, it's kind of a social responsibility, you know, even if you don't want it. You know, all of us that live on this planet, there's a saying, uh, no man is an island, right? I mean, all of us interact with each other, you know, <laughs> whether we want to or not. And the more people there are, the more we interact and cross paths. So, the, you know, we have a social responsibility to other people. And uh, getting the vaccine is is kind of your patriotic
0: duty. Dr. Andrew Wilner is our guest today, and uh, we're talking with him about COVID nineteen and a host of other things. You can check out Andrew's podcast, "The Art of Medicine." Uh, it's also a video uh, YouTube uh, broadcast, and, and you can find it at Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. His latest book. Is really interesting. It's called The Locum Life, and and we're going to talk to him about what that means, and I think it will uh, resonate with an awful lot of our listeners today. Um, There was a story, Andrew, recently, uh, earlier this week, as a matter of fact, I believe, about a a physician who very publicly posted, uh, look, if you are unvaccinated, I'm not going to see you anymore, and I'll be happy to transfer your records somewhere else, but uh, you, you are not to darken this door again. And I wonder your thoughts on that uh, as a physician, because there's there's some sort of unwritten oath that you guys you know, are there to to take care of people. So did this physician step over the line?
1: Burke, that is a great question. I saw that story, and I mentioned it to my wife, and I said, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I have. I mean, you just heard how I feel about vaccination. I don't have any uh, any qualms about that, and I hope I didn't lose half your audience uh, with my <laughs> uh, my advice. Uh, but I agree. You know, it does not say in the Hippocratic Oath that you must treat everyone. But I just talked about social responsibility, and one of the things about becoming a healthcare provider is accepting that social responsibility that you are there to help people. That's your job. And, you know, whether they are old or young or a certain ethnic group or religion or color, that doesn't play a part in it. So I personally would not do what that physician did. I would... Encourage all of my patients to get the vaccine, but if someone refused to get the vaccine, uh, I would not withhold care because to me that's crossing. I'm a physician and I'm going to care for for everyone who comes to me uh, if I can. Now I would certainly ask that patient and demand that that patient wear a mask in the uh, in the waiting room, Um, and he you know he got to meet me halfway there. But I would not withhold care. Now, How what this physician did ethically, um, you know, I write uh, perspective uh, pieces for uh, Medscape. And I think that that is a great uh, column. I really need to research that and see what the ethical
0: precedents are uh,
1: for that. But personally, uh, I would not do that.
0: Dr. Andrew Wilner, our guest today, he's an associate professor of neurology, a neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, and throughout the South, and and there you are in the heart of the Mid-South, this seems to be a bigger problem than in a lot of other places, and as somebody who lives there, and you've put roots down there, you're there with your wife, and you talked about your your little boy, um, what is it psychologically, uh, physically, mentally that, that makes it a bigger problem where you are in the southern U.S.
1: Well, I think it does come down to leadership. Um, The theme that I was talking about earlier is that we are all in this together. We're all Americans. We all care about our country, and we should all care about each other. And I think uh, people respond to leadership, and I think the leadership has not been very consistent because there are competing interests. You know, we're Americans and we uh, pride ourselves on our personal freedoms and uh, individuality and our, our rights to, to do what we want. And those are very important things. But, you know, when you look at the way we live, uh, we all wear seatbelts. You know, we've agreed to that. And I mean, that's a really big affront to your, you know, personal decision making. I gotta wear a seatbelt in the car, you know, and what happens if you don't? Well, if you don't, you get a ticket. So society kind of decided, you know, seatbelts work and it's a good thing to do. And it's going to it's going to help you're going to help each other by by doing that. Same thing with stop signs. You know, stop signs are kind of a big affront to our personal freedoms. You know, why can't I just drive as fast as I want wherever I want to go? Well somebody decided that stop signs, you know, at intersections were a good idea and we all have to follow that rule. So I think there's been a lack of consistent leadership as to the importance of wearing masks and the importance of vaccination and how the importance of living in a society and caring for each other might be more important than
0: certain, you know, personal freedoms. I think that uh, the thing that has surprised me the most in this pandemic, Andrew, and, and a lot has surprised me, uh, by no means did I have a crystal ball to predict any of this, but the thing that surprised me the most is that a worldwide global health event like this became so politicized so quickly and, and was so divisive. Did, did that surprise you as well, or, or is it something that, that you saw as, as, look, this is going to happen and we're just going to have to deal with it?
1: I would say I
0: am still
1: stunned. (laughs) I really can't wrap my brain around that. It is such an absurd phenomenon that uh, I can't understand it.
0: And you you and I have enough mileage on us to remember when uh, the seatbelt was not a thing in every vehicle. And there was... There was some talk back and forth about that, and and even more recent than that, you know, what twenty twenty five years ago, smoking in restaurants was a thing and and freedoms are being taken away, and all that, but certainly not to the extent uh, that that the divisiveness has happened here and I wonder what what the difference is and what caused uh, this to be so much more uh, controversial and, and politically charged than, than those other things that that eventually came to pass.
1: Oh, well, you know, I wish I knew, but I, I think it's just a reflection of the, uh, divisiveness in our politics and, uh, certainly social media by amplifying those, you know, at the extreme opinions and even the, Mainstream media, you know, does have a a tendency to promote the loudest, you know, voice and the biggest fire. Um, I think that that has contributed to a lack of listening, you know, of each person's uh, opinions and, uh, you know, a lack of respect that uh, we need to respect each other's, you know, opinions. and, And that means listening. And so uh,
0: I'm all for more listening. Dr. Andrew Wilner is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, sponsored by Speaker Match. He's a physician based in Memphis, Tennessee. And one last question before we, we sort of shift into talking about the book, which also I think has a lot of implications to COVID-19. Uh, and that is this, when you walk through the halls of your hospital, what's the sense of uh, family members and staff um, and patients in relationship to COVID-19. You know, what? what's the overall feeling there? Is, is it one of hope? Is it one of exhaustion? Is it one of despair? Can you just sort of paint a picture for me of what it's like to go to work in that sort of environment on a daily basis? Hmm.
1: Well, I'm sure it's, you know, different for different uh, people that work at the hospital. You know I know for me, um, and as you mentioned, uh, I have some mileage. you know, when all this started and they created what was called you know, the high risk groups of people who were more likely to die if they got the infection, um, when I read the list, I realized that that I was in one of those high risk groups. You got a bullseye and, on you. Yeah. and i I had to uh, question, you know maybe, maybe I shouldn't go you know i i do have a young son and i do have a family and it's like well but this is my career and so my my approach has kind of been to grit my teeth you know and and just do my best under the circumstances you know and 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 contribute as much as i can and and when i walk the halls that's what i see people doing You know, everybody realizes that we're in some kind of disaster movie. You know, I mean, people are dying left and right. Patients, families can't come and visit. You know, I think we now allow one visitor. For a while, we weren't allowing any. Um, You have to go through, you know, a checkpoint at the door even to get into the hospital because we don't want people bringing more COVID into the hospital. People behind glass, you know, our ICU has big glass doors. And in order to go in there, you have to gown up and put on a mask and she, well, nobody wants to do all that. So these people are relatively, you know isolated except for the care that they absolutely have to have. They're on ventilators, they can't communicate well. Many of them, the ones that I see, you know, what a neurologist do, well, you know, neurologists deal with the brain. And one of the things we do is see people who are confused or delirious, what we call altered mental status. So I'm often caused to see patients when they, they can't communicate and they're unresponsive. You know, they're in a coma. Well, what happened? Did they bleed in their brain? Is it the infection? Is it COVID? Is it some other problem? I mean, you know, this is this is really serious stuff. And I think everyone at the hospital knows this. And so we're all just trying to help as much as we can and you know and get through the day
0: and at this point an awful lot of it is preventable if people would just get the shot in the arm and and i think that's got to be probably the i don't want to put words in your mouth the most disturbing part of it all so much of it could could go away if people would just do the right thing
1: well i've seen posts by physicians it's like well you know, don't you care about us? <laughs> you know, right? I mean, we are overwhelmed here, and uh, you know, and you're celebrating your personal freedoms while uh, people, other people, are dying.
0: Doctor Andrew Wilner is the host of the podcast The Art of Medicine. You can find him online at andrewwilner.com dot com. That's W I L N E R. And you have a book that uh, that sort of uh, speaks to what I think an awful lot of of medical professionals uh, have have come out and talked about publicly during COVID-19. The book is called The Locum Life, and, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, A Physician's Guide to Locum Tenens, and why don't you explain very briefly what that means? What is Locum Tenens?
1: Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because people didn't know what locum tenens meant, and that's what I was doing, and I'd meet somebody in the plane, and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, I'm a locum tenens physician. You know, I get this blank stare. So, you know, locums, it's just a Latin term. Locums means place, and tenens is like the word tenacity. It means to, to hold on. So a locum tenens physician is is a placeholder, someone who holds the place for someone else and it's a latin term that's used for physicians it's also used for clergy you know there are small towns that don't have a you know a full time you know priest or pastor right and on holidays or there'll be some guy that comes around right and does the services and then he leaves so that's the locum tenens guy these guys that that move around from place to place filling in the gaps and for physicians uh, there are practices, for example, where maybe somebody retires, or somebody moves out of town, or someone gets sick, or there's a woman on maternity leave for a few months, and there's a gap. So a locum tenens physician will come in temporarily and fill that gap. For could be for a weekend, could be a week, could be six months or a year. And as you know, the healthcare system has grown so rapidly, and there's new hospitals and new clinics and there's enormous growth, and it takes a long time to hire a permanent physician. In fact, I have to go this afternoon to uh, do an interview. We're trying to hire a new physician for our practice, and even if we agree on everything today and say, okay, you're hired, sign here, and it's done, it will be six months to a year before that physician can actually practice because they have to get a state license, right? We don't have a national licensing system for doctors. If you're a doctor in Tennessee, you have to get a license in Tennessee. And that process can take anywhere from two months to 12 months to Get all of the documentation from all of your training and every place you've ever worked and recommendations and checks with the government, FBI (laughs) clearances to make sure, you know, you're not a criminal. I mean, the list of credentials that have to be presented to get your license is enormous. And then, you know, it goes through the state licensing bureaucracy. Then you have to get credentials after you have your state license at the hospital. Who will basically redo all of that credentialing again? They want to make sure that they have doctors with a you know clean record. Uh, and then the doctor actually has to move to the location, you know, and get an apartment or a house and get settled and kind of get plugged in. Oh, and then they have to be credentialed with all the insurance companies so that when they do see a patient with Blue Cross or Cigna, they actually get paid. So there's a whole process there. So it turns out that the system is is pretty clunky. So when you need a new person, sometimes you get a locum tenens physician to fill the gap until that new physician uh, can really get started.
0: I think uh, a lot of folks are familiar with the concept of the travel nurse who comes in for, you know, a, a six-month assignment, a three-month assignment uh, somewhere. Folks probably a little less familiar with, with locum tenens uh, physicians, who sort of parachute in and parachute out? Which, by the way, the cover of the book has this great uh, cartoon drawing of of a, a doctor parachuting into a town and people saying, "Finally, we got somebody." But but how is uh, those those parachuting in doctors uh, set up differently than than the travel nurse? Well, I'd say it's quite quite similar.
1: It's the same idea. Uh, the doctor. The only thing that slows locums down is the locums doctor does have to have a state license and be credentialed at that hospital. And so when I was working locums kind of full time, I had as many, I think, as 10 state licenses because the process is so long that if I get a call, hey, Dr. Wilner, we need you in South Dakota. There's a hospital there. They need somebody for six months. Can you come? If I said, "Well, I have to apply for my South Dakota license, you know and I go, well, thank you very much, and they'd call somebody who has a South Dakota license right. who's going to be ready a lot sooner than me. So, um you have to have a bunch of uh, licenses. Uh, but I do want to go back to what you mentioned. One of the fun things about working locums is that you come into a situation where they really need you. And they really want you. And so that, I mean, that's terrific. You know, you show up, oh, Dr. Wilner, it's so great that you're here. You know, and at first I thought that that was because, you know, of my reputation and they know I'm going to do a good job.
0: It's all desperation. And that was part of it. It's all desperation. But mostly it's
1: just because somebody is here, right?
0: <laughs> this is great. <laughs> put somebody into that chair, absolutely. And I'm sure there are lots of, uh, you know, rural areas in America where they're just starving. Uh for physicians as this relates to the pandemic I would have to think that that if if you were a physician who were so moved to do this sort of thing and and move from place to place that might help cut down on uh, the burnout that that folks are are feeling and we hear that all the time about medical professionals during this time of the pandemic uh, just how brutal that is so did you find when you did this on a full-time basis when you you know sort of went from town to town as as the fill-in guy as the, the six man off the bench that that it kept it fresh and interesting for you
1: absolutely absolutely you know uh ever since i was a teenager i've had a passion for uh writing and uh you know i knew as soon as i could sort of be uh kind of a grown up that i was going to be a writer and you know, writing's hard work. I also knew I was gonna be a physician. So I had these two pretty demanding careers right in front of me. You know, I'm I'm also a bit of a perfectionist, and so I, I really put my heart, you know, and soul into everything I do. And the upshot was I didn't have enough time to be as good as I wanted to be as a physician and as a, a writer. And so one way to manage that was to not to try and do them at the same time so I could work locum for three months and then I could write for three months and locums for three months and write for three you know and work-life balance is is elusive right I mean I think it's a lifelong uh, challenge but that helped enormously also the choice it's like well you know I don't want to work next January I want to be in the Philippines scuba diving it's like okay that's up to me I don't have to ask permission, you know, when I was in, I originally started in a normal private practice and when I wanted to go on vacation, I had to submit the dates six months ahead of time. You know, I'm going to take two weeks off, you know, six months from now because my outpatients would be, you know, we can't schedule them for those days. I mean, it's a big system and, you know, in order for the system to work, they need to know if you're going to be there or not. But when you work locums, you're only responsible to yourself. So it's like, you don't want to work for the next six months? Fine, you know, it's up to you. And you want to work, call your staffing agent or, uh, you know, talk to a friend who's at the hospital who knows there's going to be an opening and you just set it up. So there's a huge amount of flexibility. And and I do promote locums as an alternative to burnout because one of the sad things, well, there's a few sad things that have happened with burnout. One, there is a... uh, problem with physician suicide, right? I mean, physicians are more likely to commit suicide than any other profession. I mean, what a tragedy, right? Wow, I did not know that. That's awful. It is awful. And it's, I mean, it's a tragedy for anyone to commit suicide, but for physicians, you know, who are, have dedicated themselves to helping others, you know, to drop out of the system. And some of that is due to burnout. The other sad thing that's happened is many physicians have decided, you know, this just isn't working for me. I'm going to transfer into a non-clinical career. And uh, there are many, many websites and coaches who are helping physicians transfer their skills to a non-clinical career, like being in the pharmaceutical industry or reviewing insurance claims you know, administrating, being CMO of the hospital, doing everything but take care of patients. And I think that's tragic too, because most physicians go into medicine because they wanna help people and they wanna take care of patients. Sure. Now there's nothing wrong with, with non clinical careers if you know if that's what you want to do. But it. it it seems kind of sad that a physician who would otherwise be happy taking care of patients is so burned out by the system. And what I mean by the system is, you know, scheduling, having to see patients so quickly and working with electronic medical record that's cumbersome and waste your time, things like that. So that the whole day is, you know, unsatisfying, you know, preferring to be, you know, uh, a lot of committee work. <laughs> That doesn't seem right. So locums is a way to practice medicine on your own terms.
0: He's the author of the Locum Life. It's a uh, physician's guide to locum tenens, which means uh, being a, essentially a travel doctor. Doctor Andrew Wilner joins us from Memphis, Tennessee today. Um, what would you say to the person who's listening right now to our Big Time Talker podcast who says, "Yeah, that, you know that's that's all well and good, Doctor Wilner, but you know I, I kind of want to get to know my doctor." I don't want somebody who's going to be here for three months and then skedaddle off to go scuba diving in the Bahamas and I never see the guy again. I'm never going to get good health care that way. How important is that that relationship between you and your physician long term?
1: Well, you are correct. The problem is, is that that kind of relationship in American medicine, uh, forgetting about locums for a minute, has pretty much On the way out, it's all I was going to say vanish, but not yet. Because, for in most locations now, your primary care physician is not the physician who will take care of you when you're hospitalized, right? About 20 years ago, the hospitalist system came up where the physician who works at the hospital is there full time. And the primary, you know, it used to be the doctor would make rounds at the hospital from seven to nine, come back, see his patients, you know, from nine to five and go back to the hospital, you know, from five to seven. And that kind of practice is disappearing for for a lot of reasons. One reason is, is that people who get into the hospital are really, really sick. And uh, taking care of them between seven and nine and five to seven doesn't play out. You know, there are many more tests. The tests have to be reviewed. They have decisions have to be made. Um, used to be patients come into the hospital. They've been there for a lot longer. Pace was slower. So the hospitalist system does have sort of reasons to exist. And I actually work as a neurohospitalist, where I see patients with neurologic problems who are in the hospital. I also have an outpatient practice, but it's, much smaller. And so having, you know, the Marcus Welby physician who sort of takes care of you from, you know, the time you're a teenager to the time you ended up in the nursing home is becoming more and more rare. Uh, shift work is very common now in the emergency room, right? It's the emergency room doctor. He's there from 12 to 12. And, you know, then it's a different doctor. Uh, even primary care uh, patients will find that they show up and they get a different doctor that day. Well, Dr. So-and-so is not available today. You're going to get, you know, Dr. Y instead of Dr. X. And that there's this concept that the physicians are interchangeable, which I disagree with, by the way. Uh, But this, uh, the (laughs) obtaining a doctor who will do that for you in sort of a, a lifelong way is becoming, uh, very, very difficult. And of course, the increased mobility of Americans—you know—who stays in one place for more than a few years.
0: So you would disagree then with with the notion that you get better health care if you have consistency of the provider. You think that the records and uh, you know the technology has made it such that uh, you could see one of these locum tenens doctors for six months and then. Uh, pick right up with somebody else and there not be a big bump or or degradation in your health care?
1: Well, not exactly. I think the ideal scenario is to have that continuity of care with one person but the practicality it is that it doesn't exist anymore Got it. even without locums that in the normal you know routine there just aren't doctors that can do that anymore doctors don't want to be available 24/7 you know for their whole lives right when you and I were kids right you could call your family doctor anytime that's right right Yep. You know, now you get a recording. If, the, you know, if this is a problem, leave a message. If it's real serious, go to the ER, right? That's what it says. You know, the, the medicine is no longer practiced that way. So, and the point you make is also correct, is that now with electronic medical records and x-rays, uh, you know, but there is a compromise. I mean, there's nothing better than seeing a physician who knows you. And that's a wonderful thing um and with locums that is sacrificed but my point was that it's also sacrificed even without locums in 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 most
0: situations now something new that's come along in the pandemic that an awful lot of folks uh have, have taken advantage of whether they wanted to or not is the the acceleration of telemedicine and uh, you know i live here in the washington dc metro and my healthcare provider Locked the doors and said, "You're not coming into this facility for some manner of months, you know, unless there's a serious, serious issue, and then off to the emergency room with you." Uh, However, we'll make your your, uh, physician available for a video conference or a a telephone call. We prefer a video conference, and so you download the app and you do uh, the video conference. So, two questions there for you, Andrew. One is. Is that as effective as going in to see the doctor in person? And secondarily, could you not set up a situation like that where Dr. Andrew Wilner in Memphis, Tennessee could see patients across the 50 states and all our territories from his office in Memphis, Tennessee without ever having to hop on an airplane and become a travel physician?
1: Well, I'm going to give you kind of a long answer if that's okay. Absolutely. When telemedicine first sort of became practical with you know the internet having reasonable speeds and you know videos actually worked and we're in hearing buzzing and disconnections and it looked like this was like a real thing I wrote a, I mentioned earlier I write commentaries I wrote a commentary about how this was not the way to practice medicine because you were missing the critical element of laying on of hands. You know, there's nothing like being face to face, where you can sit with the patient, talk with the patient, touch the patient, you know, feel their pulse. Uh, you know, being separated by a computer screen is not what you want. And that was my opinion. Well, a few years later, I worked locum tenens at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix. And, and the reason that they wanted me is they had just expanded their telemedicine service for uh, neurologic consultations, particularly for stroke in small hospitals that did not have a neurologist. And they had this uh, robot kind of uh, R2-D2 thing that was in the ER with a video camera and a stethoscope And uh, amazing resolution. I mean, you could peer into the pupil of the patient with this thing. And uh, you could see the patient's x-rays. You could talk to the patient back and forth. The only thing you couldn't do was literally touch the patient. And I would do this, you know, all night long. And you'd get a call at 2 a.m. from some little hospital that a guy was there. And he was weak on his right side. And did he have a stroke or not? And we have a treatment called TPA. There's a lot of pressure because for TPA to work, it has to be given right away, you know, within a few hours. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You can't give it. So, you know, there's there's a fair amount of urgency, even though the patient's just kind of sitting there, you know, not bleeding to death. But in fact, uh, you know, the stroke is evolving and it's harder to do the consultation that way from the physician's point of view because you're not in the room. But I discovered that it could be done. And there's been some studies since then that demonstrated that neurologic consultations for stroke done by telemedicine versus in-person had pretty much the same outcomes. In other words, you were not sacrificing uh, quality and the patient's prognosis would be just as good if you did it via telemedicine than by uh, in-person. Now, I would still maintain that it's better to be in person. But, but the key here is that there was no person. In other words, at these little outlying hospitals, they did not have a neurologist. So even though the telemedicine neurologist is only equivalent, in my view, to about a 90% neurologist, that's 90% more than they would have had otherwise. You know, otherwise they would have had a phone call. And of course we've been doing medicine via phone, right? That's a kind of telemedicine, you know, for decades and decades, right? You call your doctor in the middle of the night. I have this, I have that. He asks a lot of questions and he says, you know, take two aspirins and see me in the morning or go to the ER, right? right. So that's, that's not an, a new thing. Now to answer the second part of your question, could I sit at home with my, you know, big screen here and care for patients all over the country? The answer is yes. And that is being done. I don't think it's as good as if the patient was sitting, you know, right next to me in my office. But yes, I'm not doing it personally, but it is being done and it can be done. And I think it will be done more and more because in many cases um, it's adequate, Um, particularly if it's a patient you've already seen in person. I think that's the beauty of telemedicine. When you've already met, say you were my patient, we've already met, I've examined you, we've had a nice chat. And then, you know, two months later, you call me and you say, you know, I've got a headache, Dr. Wilner. It's like, OK. So then we can continue sort of our relationship via Zoom, for example. And I can probably do everything I need to do that way without having, you know, drive three hours and wait two hours for me and then drive three hours home. So we can accomplish in, you know, 30 minutes what otherwise would have been a day off of work for you. Um, And uh, probably with a pretty good result.
0: Dr. Andrew Wilner is our guest. The book is The Locum Life, A Physician's Guide to Locum Tenens, where doctors parachute into uh, into different situations and work temporarily. Is that generally a three-month gig? Is it a six-month gig? Is it all over the place? All over the place. Very variable. So when you were doing this, and I think you told me before we went on the air for a couple of decades – tell me about sort of the the coolest, most interesting situation you found yourself in. And and it could have been because of the people at the the hospital you worked at. It could have been because it was an interesting small town. Uh, But but when you look back on that time of of going all over the country and doing these temporary assignments, which one stands out the most? I think
1: the one that stands out the most is the first one I did. I mentioned earlier that I wanted to write and I wanted to be a doctor. So after my internship, uh I didn't really know which specialty I wanted. I had worked very hard during my internship. You know, in those days, uh, we worked every day. My first day off, I think, was Christmas Day, you know, right. not going to the hospital. And it was an all-immersive experience. And and as the year came to a close, you know, I, this is the year after I graduated medical school, I was now a full-fledged physician. Just wasn't really sure where I was going with this. I had also a book that I was working on, a manuscript that I had, you know, put in the drawer because I said to myself, hey, you know, internship's pretty hard. You better focus on that. So we'll get back to the writing later. So after my internship, I spoke to my you know, training advisor there and I said, you know, I want to take a, a year off and figure out what I want to do and come back. I got a book to write. He said, OK. So I got a job in an emergency room, a nearby uh, little ER. It had two beds, this ER, and a couple nurses, and one doctor, which was me. For uh, I worked three nights a week, so from 7 to 7. I was up all night. Sometimes I could sleep a little bit if I'm too busy. And on the, my four other days, I could work on my manuscript. So it was really good. But what happened in the, you know, in the ER, I saw everything. I saw a car Sweet. accidents, lacerations. I delivered babies. Uh, frankly, I saw some things I wasn't all that well trained to handle, and I had a lot of books, and I used the phone pretty freely to call the, you know, the, the patient's doctor, and I said, you know, your patient's here, and they've got this big rash, you know, all over their body. It's like, what do you think I ought to do? And because uh, you know, I was pretty, pretty green. And it was a great learning experience for me, but it was stressful. But what came out of it that I did not expect is that the patients that came in with complaints like, you know, Dr. Willard, I woke up this morning and now I see double and my left side is weak, you know, or um, I'm numb here and uh, or I'm dizzy or I can't walk straight like, gee, that's pretty interesting. And I discovered that the patients with neurological complaints were the ones that really fascinated me. So that actually was the experience. I was doing internal medicine and I actually finished my internal medicine residency. I did three years of that, but then I went on to do three more years in neurology and a fellowship in epilepsy because of that ER experience that uh, clued me in that neurology was really going to be my uh, passion in medicine.
0: So by doing this, by being one of these these travel doctors, you actually found out uh, your life's calling. It's pretty interesting. The book is The Locum Life, A Physician's Guide to Locum Tenens. The, the author and our guest today is Dr. Andrew Wilner, and uh, he's a pretty prolific writer. He's also written uh, a couple of books on epilepsy, which is his uh, – his specialty, uh, one called Bullets and Brains, and uh, he also hosts a podcast that I think you'll find interesting um, that you should check out, and it's available at, at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts called The Art of Medicine. We're, we're almost out of time, Andrew, but I want to leave you, if we can, with the, the last word on this this global pandemic, which in many cases is beginning to look like an endemic, right? Like it's something we're going to have to learn how to deal with uh, long-term and figure out how to bob and weave and uh, mask up sometimes and not mask up other times, and we have booster shots and, and all that. But, but what is, if I give you the last word on, on what you would say maybe to encourage people to, to get vaccinated or in a, a broader sense on just how to deal with what's to come in this, uh, this pandemic life? Well, that's kind of a tall order. You but, can do it. You
1: know, when, when, you know, in order for all of us to fulfill our potential, right. When I say a prayer, I, you know, I, I pray that we can help make the world a better place. You know, give me the strength and wisdom to help me make the world a better place. I think all of us w- want to do that. And, and in order to do that, we need, we need to be healthy. And so we need to find ways, you know, and of course that's what modern medicine does. You know, we have antibiotics. And vaccinations have actually proved to be pretty helpful historically, you know, getting rid of polio, you know, pretty, pretty nasty things. And uh, we do have a vaccination now for COVID and it's not perfect. Uh, it is actually amazingly effective and amazingly free of serious side effects. There are some, you know, like with any medication, but it's it's pretty well tolerated. I mean, I have to confess that when the vaccine first became available, and as a healthcare provider, you know, I was at the top of the list. I had reservations. It's like, gee, they made this thing pretty quick. I don't sure. want to be a guinea pig and. But when I looked into it, the technology that they've used to make this vaccine, you know, this wasn't developed overnight. They've been working on this for 20 years. They, you know, this is not new science. This was old science that suddenly found a purpose and uh, the vaccines work. And I think, you know, all of us want to see our friends and family and go to work and not wear masks and be healthy. But right now, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and we have to do everything that we can to protect ourselves, uh, the people that we love and our neighbors, even if we don't love them. Right. I mean, they're they're part of our world. And and so I think it looks like vaccination and masking are, are the best things that we can do. For Now, you know, maybe something better will come along. Maybe there'll be a way to really get rid of this thing or you just take a pill after, you know, you get COVID and it goes away. But I think that's the other thing to emphasize is that our treatments for this virus are very, very limited. Um, It's not like an antibiotic where, you know, you get an infection in your hand and it's all red and swollen. You know, you take penicillin a week later, it goes away. We don't have anything magic like that. Uh, for this virus. We do have some things that, you know, help a little bit. And uh, like, you know, the uh, uh, immunoglobulins and, and things like that. But it, these things don't add much. So the, the way to stay healthy is not to get this virus in the first place. So I would plead with everyone to, you know, look deep into your hearts and see what you can do to help make the world a better place. I
0: like it. Dr. Andrew Wilner, our guest today. Check out his podcast, The Art of Medicine, with Dr. Andrew Wilner and uh, any of his books, including The Locum Life, a physician's guide to locum tenens, which is just uh, another way of saying a, a travel doctor. Uh, Andrew Wilner is a practicing physician in Memphis, Tennessee. He thanks for being here today.
1: Oh, thank you, Burke. It's been really great.
0: Thank you for listening wherever you are, whatever you do. Go out and make it a great day. Thank you, Speaker Match, for sponsoring our Big Time Talker podcast. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening.